This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. On this episode of the podcast, we're going to take a look at what the world lost when Cordoba collapsed in the early 11th century. So if you're wondering first where episode 57 went on the feed, well, it's there, but it's an anchor-supporting listener episode. If you become an anchor-supporting listener, you're going to receive an extra episode each month, including all those missing episodes in your feed you might be wondering what happened to. And it's for less than two American quarters per month. And if you're still wanting more, you can also become a member of our Patreon group, which will give you access to everything published through Anchor, as well as a second extra episode published to Patreon only. For instance, we just began a new series for Patreon members only about the beginnings of Poland. January's episode is already out, and February's will be coming out shortly. So don't miss out. A quick off-the-cuff moment here. I'd like to apologize for all of a sudden ghosting the show for a few weeks. It started with, after about two successful years of avoiding the much-dreaded scourge of the Rona, alas, it swept almost entirely through my family. I, of course, was one of its victims. It was a rough few weeks here, but our energy is back, and thankfully we have few, if any, lasting issues. Well, that we know of so far. Either way, between COVID, the end of a trimester at school, and the fact that I'm honestly fed up with this whole microphone issue that makes recording a single episode three or four times longer than it did before, well... That's what I hope you can understand about the show's missing episodes this last month. So, here we go. Today's episode, episode 58, is entitled, What Was Lost? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Constantinople, London, Paris, Rome, Budapest, Cairo, Kiev... Marrakesh, Edinburgh, York, Baghdad, Jerusalem, Antioch, Damascus, Palermo, and Syracuse. Listen, I'm well aware of the overwhelming number of culturally and visually impressive cities that are either ancient up to this point in our narrative, or even those just beginning to establish themselves in the second millennium. And those cities, I hope, We'll have their day, too, on this podcast. I mean, we still have about 450 years of history to cover, so there's time. And with the exception of Constantinople, which we both already covered in our short miniseries on on Harold Hardrada's early years, and we will surely be returning to uh, numerous times in the future here, Cordoba might, during the lifeline of this show, be the second most impressive city to exist during the medieval period. Of course, this is certainly up for debate. I don't doubt that. So my intention isn't necessarily to persuade you of this opinion. Rather, my intention is to lay it out and let you decide. That said, the more I research, the more I come to the conclusion that whether it's officially the second most impressive city of the Middle Ages or not, Cordoba is a city that once shined brighter than most others all around the world. It was a city that declared itself a center of learning of culture, of political influence, and of commerce. And then one day, someone woke up and realized that it no longer held such grand real estate in the hearts and minds of people. One day, after fading little by little every year, Cordoba's light was too dim to be seen from afar. 
This sick usurpation of power pretty much piled-drived the caliphate into chaos, a tailspin that would take a decade to unfold and another decade or so after that to be fully realized for its lasting impact on Muslim supremacy in Iberia. The beautiful city of Cordoba was the victim of such greed and malice, proof that even the greatest creations of humankind can be washed away by the avaricious floods of one person, a lesson to us all even today. So I think it's fitting to take an episode to describe the grandeur a bit more. The grandeur that once prompted Roswitha of Gandersheim, a 10th century German nun, to, procl- to proclaim excuse me, Cordoba as, quote, the ornament of the world. So what did the world lose when Cordoba fell? Well, in this episode, we're going to focus on an idea. This idea was called convivencia. That's one thing the world gained, something rarely found during the Middle Ages, except in Jerusalem, and even there it was a terse, tense sort of idea when put into practice. Convivencia translates to coexistence, particularly pointing to the coexistence between Muslims, Christians, Jews, and other faiths, from paganism to Zoroastrianism to Manichaeism, which were still practiced somewhat widely. Now, before we head down this particular line of thinking, this idea of universal tolerance and, and relative liberalism on some grand scale, one that, one that I admittedly have gushed over myself on this podcast from time to time, I wanted to share an excerpt from an interesting paper I read written by Kenneth Baxter Wolf of Pomona College back in January of 2007. He writes of this idea of convivencia, but he offers an interesting yet terse warning. Quote, Convivencia first emerged as the byproduct of a famous debate between Américo Castro and Claudio Sánchez Albornoz that dominated Spanish historical scholarship during the Franco years. Since then, convivencia has taken on a life of its own, fueled in part by increased interest in multiculturalism on the one hand and rising concern about sectarian violence on the other. The application of anthropological models has gone a long way toward clarifying the actual mechanisms of acculturation at work in medieval Spain and tempering the tendency to romanticize convivencia, end quote. So, so that was the setup for this next part. Wolf says, quote, But the weightier and saner parts of that research have yet to trickle down to the borders crowd, and romantic notions of medieval Spanish tolerance persist, fed in large part by the continued popularity of a single book, Maria Rosa Menical's The Ornament of the World, How Muslims, Jews, and Christians Created a Culture of Tolerance in Medieval Spain, published in 2002. End quote. So that made me take a pause for a moment, because Maria Rosa Menical's The Ornament of the World has been, and still is, a key piece to my research on medieval Cordoba. But does that mean that I should throw the baby out with the bathwater here? Well, let's read on. Wolf writes, quote, In a nutshell, Menical's thesis is that the unusual level of tolerance of religious difference that characterized the Umayyad period 
of Andalusian history was built not so much on the, you know, quote, guarantees of religious freedoms comparable to those we would expect in a modern tolerant state, end quote, but on the, quote, often unconscious acceptance that contradictions within oneself as well, within, as, well as within one's culture could be positive and productive, end quote. Okay, so, see, I think it's fair to state that when isolating a particular aspect of a culture, like an aspect like convivencia, that one tends to minimize contradictory evidence. Maybe Menical didn't minimize or overlook many of the contradictions that would work against her argument of a sense of coexistence between Muslims and their non-Muslim neighbors. But is it fair to throw Menical's entire idea of Cordoban tolerance out just because she chose to highlight one aspect of Muslim culture in the area at the time? Well, in other words, does, does that negate her entire argument? My point here in explaining Wolf's point of view compared to Menical's is not to say that Wolf is right or that Menical is right. Rather, it's to give us the realization that this coexistence, this convivencia in medieval Cordoba was complicated. It wasn't as straightforward as, you know, hey, Christians and Jews were fully accepted into Muslim society as equals. Quite the contrary, actually. Even our German nun, Roswitha, knew as much when she wrote, quoted through Wolf's paper here, quote, Only one condition was to be carefully preserved, that no citizen of this city blaspheme the gods made out of gold, which that prince, and those who held power after him, worshipped. If he did, he must immediately be put to the sword, forced to suffer capital punishment, end quote. Wolf follows Horosvitha's words with his own. He says, There were, in fact, a number of restrictions placed on the lives of Andalusian Christians, including the ringing of bells, the building of new churches, and marriage to Muslim women. End quote. And the punishments were severe for those who broke any of these rules, including conversion of Muslims away from Islam. In fact, there are numerous records indicating the beheading of Christians for such a crime. So what evidence can we turn to that would back up this idea, Menachal's idea, of Cordoban convivencia? Well, it's interesting that Wolf points out in his paper what I also have highlighted in my own copy of Menachal's book. The Umayyads, quote, defined their version of Islam as one that loved its dialogues with other traditions, end quote. And those are Menachal's words, to be sure. So one such piece of evidence of Muslims and their love of their dialogues with other traditions, comes from Jews living in Iberia during the reign of the Umayyad dynasty in Iberia. So no one really has an exact date or even decade that Jews first established a lasting community in Iberia. But there is some pretty weak, though thought-provoking, evidence that it was before even the Romans who arrived in the BCE years. However, we are pretty sure when Iberia saw its second or third wave of Jews, in the year 70 CE, might ring a bell to some of you historians out there, in the year 70 CE, back, in, back east in Jerusalem, the Romans and the Jews were in the midst of its first of three incredibly brutal Jewish rebellions. This was during the years of Emperor Nero, and Roman sentiments toward Christians and Jews weren't exactly positive. 
and this sentiment trickled down to his generals, resulting in the absolute devastation of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, orchestrated by a future emperor of Rome, Titus. It was after this horrific event that Jews and Christians scattered. Shortly after this, Jews were seen setting up shop in Iberia, far from the maddening crowd of the Holy Land. These Jews called this land Sarfat, or Sepharad. Thus, the name of these Jews has become known as Sephardic Jews, whose lineage still survives today with a global approximate population of 3.5 million. Sephardic, or simply Hispano-Jewish, no matter what you call them, these are the descendants, more or less, of the brave Jews who made their way across the Mediterranean to Iberia in the 1st and 2nd centuries, while the Jewish-Roman wars raged in the Holy Land. These Jews had lived and prospered in these lands for centuries before Tariq ibn Ziyad pushed his way into the peninsula in the year 711 CE, just four decades before Abd al-Rahman's the first arrived and set up his new Umayyad dynasty in Cordoba. Fun side note, this total side note here. It was this Tariq fella who offered his name to a pretty well-known landmark in the area. Tariq was also known as a towering, solid leader to his Arab soldiers. When he crossed from North Africa in the south to Iberia in the north, across that narrow you know, seven or so mile stretch of water separating the two continents, and connecting the Mediterranean to the Atlantic? Well, from that moment on, what had been known as the Pillars of Hercules to the Hellenic ancient world, Fretum Gaticanum to the Romans, I hope I pronounced that right, and Azzukak to the Arabs, was then called Jabal Tariq, after this great Muslim leader and conqueror of Iberia. Jabal Tariq translates to Tariq's mountain, but we know it today as the Strait of Gibraltar. I just thought that was a fun tidbit. Sorry to throw us off here. So back to our Sephardic Jewish friends. When Tariq defeated the Visigothic Christians there and his successor set up shop, culminating for those Anchor and Patreon supporting listeners who enjoyed episode 57, in Emir Yusuf, who was defeated by Abd al-Rahman I in 756 CE, see, they instituted a hierarchical system of citizenship. Essentially, Muslims didn't pay but one tax, while non-Muslims had other taxes, namely a tax that allowed you to remain Jewish or remain Christian, or remain whatever you were, so long as you followed those rules already mentioned. But you weren't stuck in this non-Muslim status, which was called dhimmi, though. No, you could convert to Islam and simply cease to pay those extra taxes, should you choose to do so. Sephardic Jews, who may not have had the numbers in Iberia to make a stand for their independence, well, these Jews were established, and these Jews were educated enough to continue their way of life. In fact, compared to Christians who tended, according to the records, to push the envelope a bit more than their Jewish neighbors, Sephardic Jews were able to reach pretty high ranks up the hierarchy. Obviously, no non-Muslims could hold top positions anywhere in the Cordoban Emirate and then Caliphate, or, but they were, excuse me, they were teachers, finance advisors, political strongmen, prominent businessmen, and military generals. Without question, the most well-known Sephardic Jew during the Caliphate era was Hazdai ibn Shaprut, 
His story, though not by any means indicative of the vast number of Sephardic Jews there, might lend itself as that evidence to the relative liberalism of Umayyad rule in Iberia. Born Abu Yusuf ben Yitzhak ben Ezra, the man who had come to be called Hazdai ibn Shaprut, was born around 914 CE near Cordoba. He was born into an educated Jewish family who was raised with, well, enough money to also educate Hazdai as well. In fact, Hazdai ibn Shaprut would not only be a translator and author, but he was also a physician, a scientist, and a philosopher. He was multilingual in Hebrew and Arabic, though later he studied and became fluent in Latin as well. Though some of his some of this probably just came through daily exposure to these languages. Hazdai created such renown, rumor had it, that he was also an alchemist who created some equivalent to the Sorcerer's Stone, but that's neither here nor there. And because of his reputation, he became the personal doctor, the personal physician, to Cordoba's first caliph, Abd al-Rahman III. He quickly elevated himself to a trusted advisor to the caliph, and essentially he became the second most powerful person in the entire caliphate. Need I remind you that Hazdai ibn Shaprut was a Jew? During this reign of Caliph Abd al-Rahman III, Cordoba, in its haste to pronounce to all parts of the world the emergence of a new and glorious caliphate, word came from the steppes of Central Asia that there was a Jewish community of nomadic horse people who had adopted Judaism. They were called Khazars, and Hazdai ibn Shaprut would be the main point of contact in those transactions. Hazdai would go on to petition kings and emperors, queens and empresses, generals, religious leaders of all faiths, to ease up on the suffocating treatment of Jews across Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa. With this prestige, wealth, and public trust, Hasdai became a serious benefactor of Sephardic Jewish culture, importing countless Hebrew texts to be translated into Arabic and Latin, thus making Jewish history, law, and faith. And it was this man's work, this, man's, this, this man blazing the trail for Sephardic Jews around Iberia to become scholars and philosophers and scientists of equal or greater import than their Muslim and Christian neighbors. In fact, it's probably pretty safe to say that the great Sephardic philosopher and physician Maimonides, who we'll talk about soon, would never have been given the opportunities he was given had the likes of Hazdai ibn Shaprut, among others, paved the way centuries before him. So it wasn't perfect by any means, but life under Muslim rule in Iberia certainly approached some sense of this convivencia. It certainly beat, the li it certainly beat living under the Visigoths before. Heck, it beat living under pretty much anywhere in Europe at the time, and again in the 20th century, or even under Roman, then Byzantine, then Norman rule in the Holy Land. So as for Christian convivencia, well, it's a little stickier. As we said before, Christians seem to either toe the line or straight step over it from time to time, all in the name of declaring and professing their faith. And in the 850s in Cordoba, we have passed down to us a tale called the 48 Martyrs. The 48 martyrs were essentially a series of public executions, 
not for the crime of faith, but of the breach of social contracts stating that Muslim faith shall not be blasphemed or denied within the emirate. Well, 48 Christians seemed to want to test the waters there, because beginning in 850 CE, a Christian Cordoban named Perfectus was beheaded for saying that Muhammad, well, shall we say, gave in to carnal desires. Oh, and Perfectus said Islam wasn't nearly as cool as Christianity, too. From this came a series of Christians who spoke out against Islam and said some pretty nasty things about the prophet Muhammad, and it seemed that though the law specifically stated that they were forbidden to do so under penalty of fines, imprisonment, or death, it seemed that people continued to be shocked when these guys ended up in, well, multiple pieces at the end of the day. I don't know, call me crazy, but what's the definition of insane again? Now, it's certainly no justification for such treatment under the law, nor such a law to exist in the first place. Again, we are seeing this from a thousand years plus uh, different lenses to wear, but it's definitely not a law I'd support, I think it's safe to say, Muslim or otherwise. But I mean, a law is a law, right? If one doesn't like the law, especially one that ends up in death, then isn't it best to live to fight another day and maybe someday change that law? Well, this, of course, is pretty tough when the lawmakers, every last one of them, support the law and there's no real system of checks and balances in place. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm really trying not to judge because, you know, glass houses and all, but I just find the whole act of defiance in cases like this particularly curious, I guess. Despite what I think, it happened. And it's worth noting that these Christians, not a one of them, were killed for being Christian. They were killed because they committed publicly or admitted to the crime already in the books and agreed upon by their choosing to live within the emirate. Remember, where you live most likely is your choice, especially these days. However, it wasn't all doom and gloom for Christians under Muslim rule. They, too, received the same rights awarded to Jews and others who submitted to the cultural supremacy of Arabic and Islam. Many Christians, like Jews, became wealthy and prosperous and influential, you know, all the things. And this was because by Islamic tradition, we're talking straight from the Quran, Jews and Christians were protected groups. In fact, we've mentioned it before, legally speaking, they were called al-al-kitab, or people of the book. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. They are all Abrahamic in faith and philosophy, though they absolutely deviate in their respective systems. Practicing it is different. Al-Al-Khattab, this idea allowed for some semblance of convivencia by its very definition. Was it perfect? No. Did it allow times of peace and prosperity? Absolutely. Were there times when Jews and Christians broke Islamic law and were duly punished? Of course. But were there far more instances that never made it into the records of Muslims, Jews, and Christians, keyword, coexisting and working together in the spirit of convivencia to better their own houses as well as the community at large? Well, there's no question. So, I mean, no one 
tunes into cable news, right? To watch people throwing unicorn-fueled compliments around, do they? These things just didn't make it into the records. The question of whether convivencia ever truly went away is up for debate. Historically, it's meant to characterize Andalusian society from the from the Umayyad Emirate years through the Caliphate years and well into the, the three separate Taifa states periods, including the reigns of the Almoravids and the Almohads in the late 11th century to the 13th century, as well as through the Emirate of Granada, which was the last Moorish stronghold in Iberia, collapsing in the year 1492. And no, that's not some crazy coincidence with what you're no doubt thinking when you hear 1492 either, but I suppose just stay tuned for on the podcast for that story. We will flesh out these periods, no doubt, as we come to them, but suffice it to say that just because the grand ornament of the world collapsed in the early 11th century doesn't mean the Moors were finished with Iberia. As you just heard, they would hang on with varying degrees of expansion and loss for the next 400 years. And 400 years is a truly long time. When you think about it, 400 years ago, the United States still had about, what, 150 years before it even existed. That's a long time. In fact, 400 years ago, almost to the date, the pilgrims landed in the New World. This idea of convivencia would play out in various ways, too, during this time. And the more Europeans see this play out, the more the idea of coexistence which is the direct translation of the word, convivencia, will take root in the Western mindset. Now, of course, you have to be absolutely delusional to believe it would manifest itself right away, but the Renaissance would flourish directly because of the work of Islam. I know, might sting for some people to hear, but I'll say it again, the Renaissance would flourish directly because of the work of Islam during the Cordoba Caliphate's and Abbasid Caliphate's reigns, thus giving rise to the individualism and cooperative spirit of the Enlightenment. And sure, you'd even be delusional to believe that the Enlightenment would birth some new sense of cultural, religious, and racial convivencia, a world in which Christians and Muslims and Jews and everyone else would live and work side by side in relative harmony. No, sadly, the Enlightenment didn't produce that outcome either. But, call me optimistic, but I, I, I do see hope still. But this idea that Muslims created a conditional-based society of harmony and coexistence, it happened. And it ebbed and it flowed in and out of focus for ages. For example, we'll learn that under the Almohads, Iberian Christians and Jews were forced to convert or else which is a far cry from life in Cordoba around the 10th century. However, during that same period, Iberian Christians and Jews, who chose to remain loyal to their faith and who chose exile over death, moved to Christian Iberian kingdoms and even across the Pyrenees into Europe proper, where they would find a more convivencia-style approach, for lack of a better term, to welcoming newcomers of different faiths. Now, I know, I know, believe me, some of you are yelling at, the, at your podcast right now, at your speakers, saying, well, what about the Jews? Yes, Jews did not have a very easy go of it, but uh, it was better at certain times than it was in Iberia. And as I said, it ebbed and flowed. So after the year 
1492, you really didn't want to be a Jew or a Muslim, or even a free-thinking Christian for that matter, in Iberia or Europe, because the Spanish Inquisition would swing into high gear, so they fled to certain Muslim lands who did allow a level of individuality. Now, if you're confused right now, that's okay, because this is what history does. It ebbs and it flows. It comes and it goes. There are, there are people that will accept one thing one day and a hundred years won't. This is why we have to look at history uh, very objectively um, and try to take off the lenses of, of our own world, right? When we look back, um, try to put yourself in their shoes. It's very difficult at times. Confusion is natural. So my point here <laughs> is that the Umayyads in both Syria and Cordoba, despite the questionable practices they did have, proved that convivencia was possible. And we're still playing with this ebb and flow of this idea in our own societies in the West, as I alluded to earlier with my optimism about the Enlightenment and its legacy. It's by no means perfect, but the West seems to outshine in this area of convivencia throughout the world today, speaking generally, of course. The Iberian Muslims proved that the fruits of this idea had the potential to be spectacular and grand and unique. And on the next episode, we'll take a look at some of the fruits of this convivencia. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please consider checking out our Patreon page where you'll have access to all Anchor Supporting Members episodes as well as, the, as, well as access to series exclusive only to our Patreon supporters. Currently about the creation of Poland, as I said at the top of the show. Every penny goes into the podcast, and you'll have my undying gratitude, of course. Mm-hmm.